0: Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know and a special presentation of Encore Week. We look back at some of the most popular, entertaining, and revealing interviews, including ones with Bob Costas, Mike Greenberg, Mike Wilbon, Sarah Kustak, and Eddie Olchek. Encore Week is proudly presented by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. Find them at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. And by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago Hot Dog and an institution since 1893. You can find them at viennabeef.com. This week, we feature longtime Chicago Blackhawks and NHL TV analyst, Eddie Olczyk. We could only equal what that Miracle on Ice team did in Lake Placid four years earlier. I mean,
1: you know, we were really in a no-win situation. Every town we went to, every city we went to, we met every dignitary. We had lunches. We met the mayor. We went to see President Ronald Reagan at the White House. Uh, I mean, we—it was—it was not only a hockey team preparing for the Olympics in 1984 in Sarajevo, but I mean, it was—it was a circus.
0: So much has changed since we first recorded this interview in October of 2020, some four months before its release. Olchek's longtime partner in the broadcast booth, Hall of Famer Pat Foley, retired. And last week, Olchek himself left the Blackhawks to become the analyst for the Seattle Kraken. And Olchek is now the lead analyst for Turner Broadcasting's NHL package. But he's still the same guy I first encountered when he joined the Hawks as a player in 1984. So Eddie Olchek. Tell me a story, I don't know. I would have this dream of getting drafted by the Blackhawks,
1: and I would, you know, be ready to go play my very first game in the NHL. And, uh, you know, I would get caught in traffic. Um, You know, the toll booths back then were backed up. I was rushing. I was going to be late. I'm sweating. I'm panicking. Like, this was the dream I was having probably. I'll say probably eight to 10 months out from actually becoming a national hockey leaguer for the first time in October of 1984. So, I mean, this dream had everything. Like I said, I woke up late from my nap. The traffic was bad. I got to the old Chicago stadium parking in gate three and a half and the security guy there, I think it might still be, I think it was Frankie Tomaselli who's still doing the same thing right now at the United center parking cars for the, for the employees and the, players of the Blackhawks on, on game nights. And I get to the, you know, I get to the gate and, you know, he's asking me who I am and, you know, where's your ID. And, you know, I didn't have my ID and I was trying to tell him I was, you know, a player and I was just <laughs> frazzled, you know, I went into the rink, you know, uh, they asked me at gate three and a half for my ID. And, you know, I just was And I would wake up, like, I would just wake up in the uh, in stream, but but I would have this dream, George, I'm not going to say I had it three days a week, but pretty damn close. Like it was one of those where I just was like scared to death. And again, I I was not drafted yet. Now that's the key. I had not been drafted yet when I was having these dreams. Well, sure enough in June of 84, I got drafted. The Blackhawks ended up taking me third overall and this dream continued. So I went to training camp as a young 18 year old hockey player. And again, uh, very wet behind the ears and, and naive and, Our old trainer, our our medical trainer, Skip Thayer, and I said, you know, Skip, you know, I said, I've been having this crazy dream. He goes, well, well, tell me about it. So he really like took a great interest into wanting to know about this dream. So I tell Skip, I go, hey, look, I, I, I wake up late from my nap. There's traffic on the highway. They won't let me into the building because they're telling me Eddie Olchek's already here and they want to see my ID and I've already been to the games and, you know, for practice and whatever. And he goes, oh, wow, that's that's kind of a crazy dream or whatever. So, I mean, I, you know, I just shared that because I felt like, you know, I was already a nervous wreck to be a rookie in the NHL. But so Skip just, you know, kind of takes it in or whatever. And then sure enough, George, I get a chance to play my very first NHL game for the Blackhawks in early October of 1984, and we're playing the Detroit Red Wings. I don't get up late for my nap, but I kind of feel rushed, right? I'm so excited. I'm going to, you know, I'm finally going to live a dream. I'm going to walk up those old, the old staircase at the Chicago Stadium. So I go to pull in where I've been for the last couple of weeks for exhibition games and parking, and everybody knows who I am. And I pull up, and sure enough, the security guy stops me, dead in my tracks, <laughs> in my car, and he says, Hey, where are you going? And I go, uh, I'm here to play the game. He goes, who in the hell are you? And I'm like, my name is Eddie Olchek. And when I said Eddie Olchek, I was like, Oh my God. And he goes, let me see your ID. And I'm like, Holy shit. I'm a psychic. I can't believe this is happening. And then he goes, nah, nah, Eddie Olchek's here. He's already here. And I go, no, 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 really. This is me. Don't you remember me? I, I was here. And then the guy kind of looks at my ID, kind of turns around a little bit. Now, I mean, Frankie could have been laughing for all I know, but I'm sitting there and I'm like, if I I needed some toilet paper because I was scared <laughs> to death. And the, I mean, I was absolutely <laughs> losing it. And he turns around and he goes, all right, go ahead. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I get out of the car. Now, look, at I'm getting ready to go play my first game in the NHL and I'm like rattled already. I'm absolutely rattled. So I walk in gate three and a half. And the old Andy frame that used to sit there came over and goes, can I help you? I go, "Uh, I'm here to play the game. He goes, who in the hell are you? I go, (laughs) go, not again. "Uh, Yeah, again. I go, (laughs) "Uh, my name's Eddie Olczyk. He goes, "Uh, he's already here already. And I go, no, no, look, look at my ID. He goes, I saw him come in earlier. I'm sorry. You're not going to be able to come in. I go, no, wait a second here. Wait, wait a minute. So now I'm like, I've lost it now. I'm like, you got to call the locker room. So he gets on the phone, he calls down at the dressing room. He goes, yeah, all right, go ahead. So I go walking down and I'm like, I, I've been hit a couple of times now where I just have, like, I can't believe I dreamed this because this is exactly what took place in my dream. So I go walking by the training room, George, and there's Skip. And all I hear is, hey, kid. And I turn around and I said, hey, Skip, he goes, did you have any problems getting into the, into the rink tonight? <laughs> I George and I told him, I said, skip, I can't believe you did that to me. And then he just came, he gave me a wink and he said, welcome to the NHL kit. And then I just walked in and I ended up scoring a, my goal. I scored, I scored my first goal in my very first game that night against the Red Wings. So it wasn't all that bad.
0: We were mentioning a couple of minutes ago about 1984. So before you came to the Blackhawks, You were part of an Olympic team that had the unenviable task of following Herb Brooks' Miracle on Ice. So tell me a story about whether the pressure was simply too much for that team to overcome. We could only equal what that
1: Miracle on Ice team did in Lake
0: Placid four years
1: earlier. I mean, you know, we were really in a no-win situation. Every town we went to, uh, every city we went to, we met Every dignitary, we had lunches. We met the mayor. We went to see President Ronald Reagan at the White House. Uh, I mean, we—it was—it was not only a hockey team preparing for the Olympics in 1984 in Sarajevo, but I mean, it was a, it was a circus. I mean, everywhere we went, everybody related us to the 1980 to the 1980 gold medal team men's Olympic hockey team. And look, it, it, it was great. I mean, it was great exposure for us. It helped prepare me for the National Hockey League, you know, some, you know, eight or nine months later. Uh, so the pressure was there from day one. But, but I mean, personally, I just couldn't believe that I was living a dream of, uh, of trying to follow in the footsteps of that miracle on ice. Because when I was watching that, George, I was watching that as a 13-year-old. And then eventually, four years later, I'm playing in the Olympics, representing our country, uh, over in Yugoslavia. And as I tell people, when, when I get out on the, uh, on the speakers tour and do banquets, I always talk about, you know, Hey, you know, anybody, everybody remember the, uh, the miracle on ice team, uh, in 1980 and everybody goes crazy and raises their hand. I said, yeah, yeah, that wasn't the team that I played on. We our, the team that I played on came, came four years later. And I said, you know, we, you know, we finished in seventh place, you know, and there's just like a hush, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I tap my microphone and I go, uh, excuse me. Uh, do you know how many countries there are in this world? We finished seventh place out of all the countries in the world. And then the people look around and go, wow. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. It's gotta be over 250 countries in the world. It's like, yeah, that's a good, yeah. Way to go. Seventh place. Yeah. All right. And everybody's clapping and cheering. And then I said, well, just for the record, uh, 235 did
0: not come to the Olympics in 1984 <laughs> yeah, the t- yeah the temper people at that point you spent three years with the Blackhawks and they traded you to Toronto mm-hmm. uh, your career exploded I mean, you, you were a heck of a goal scorer but then in that fourth season you were traded to Winnipeg and that has mm-hmm. a very interesting story that some of us know but there may be more behind it
1: Well, this this is probably the one that uh, gets the uh, gets the cake when it comes to uh, finding out and all people get uh, in sports, get traded, get fired. and, And every day goings on, George, we know that people get released, people get terminated. So it was November 9th, 1990. Uh, it was an off day in Toronto. We were getting ready to play, oddly enough, the Blackhawks on the next day on November 10th, Hockey Night in Canada, Saturday night. And my wife, Diana, uh, was very pregnant and her water broke on that Friday night on November 9th. So again, no cell phones back then for Eddie Olczyk. So I called our team PR man, uh, Bob Stelik, and I told him, said, hey, look, I'm not going to be at the morning skate tomorrow but I am going to be at the game. Diana's going into labor. You know, I'll try to keep you abreast of what's going on, but just know and let the coaches know and let our general manager, Floyd Smith, know that I'm going to be at the game tomorrow night. So, of course, Diana doesn't cooperate that Friday night, and now it is very early on Saturday morning, and Diana is still not cooperating, meaning uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, George, she was probably a one and a half or a 2. But I thought, you know what? It's an 8 o'clock game. We got lots of time, we got 12 hours. You know, I could get to the Maple Leaf Gardens in a matter of about a half hour. So at about 1130, uh, I call to just check in with the Maple Leafs and let them know, say, hey look, Diana hasn't had the baby yet but I'm gonna be at the game. So at about 233 o'clock, George, uh, Diana starts cooperating. So she goes from about a one to about a five or a six. And the doctor says, okay, Diana, hold on. Let me put my catcher's mitt on here. We're we're going we're gonna to have ourselves a baby. <laughs> okay. I'm like, okay, I get the analogy here, doc. So let's go. I got a hockey game to get to. That was pretty much what I was thinking about. So while we're in labor at about five o'clock Eastern, a nurse taps me on the shoulder and she hands me a note. And all it says on the note, it says the Maple Leafs are on the phone. So I look at her, and again, my wife is on her back. Obviously, she's getting ready to have the baby. The doctor is at the foot of the bed. There's all kinds of medical contraptions everywhere. There's people all over the place. And I tell the nurse, tell the Leafs, I will be at the game. Diana is having the baby. She leaves. She might have been gone, George, maybe 90 seconds. She comes back. She goes, they really want to talk to you. And I'm like, what do, you, what do I do, George? What do I do at that particular stage? Do I sit there and take the call? Or two, do I sit there and continue to support my wife on giving birth with our second child?
0: Do you have any inkling of
1: I what's do not. about to happen? I do not. I have no idea. I think they're just calling to check in on my wife. That's what I think. Hey, are you going to be at the game? We're going to have to play somebody for you. Uh, you know, hey, take the night off. We'll get through the game without you. That's what I was thinking. So, you know, Monty hall, let's make a deal. I say, ah, screw it. I'm going to go take the call. So, so I sneak out of the room as I'm walking my wife is going, where are you going? She goes, I got to take a phone call. So I walk out of the, I walk out of the delivery room. I go to the nurse's station, which is maybe, you know, 20 yards away. I get on the phone. They, you know, they unhook the hold button. I get on there and it's Bob Stellick, the PR guy for the Leafs. He goes, hey, Eddie, how's Diana? I go, Bob, she's having a baby. I'm going to be at the game. He goes, well, call us after she has the baby. I said, Bob, I'm not calling. I'm leaving and I'll be at the game. I'm going to play. And then there's a silent pause, an awkward pause, George, and all Bob says, hold on a second. And I'm like, I got to go. She's having a baby. He goes, hold on the general manager of the toronto maple leafs is on the other line it's floyd smith he goes eddie we hate to do this to you right now (laughs) we hate to do this to you right now but i have to inform you by league rules we have just traded you to the winnipeg jets and george at that time like my heart stopped i was like you got to be bleeping me. You got to be kidding. You just traded me while my wife is in the delivery room giving birth to our child. And you have the balls to call me (laughs) and tell me that I got traded. So I said, you know what? I can't believe it. I'm embarrassed. This is, you know, this is bullshit. And, and he said, look, I had to do it. I had to tell you before it became public, whatever. And I just says, ah, you know what? forget about it. And I just hung up the phone. So now I'm in, I'm stunned now, George. Like I am just absolutely, now again, this call was maybe 45 seconds. So I'm standing at the nurse's station. Like, what do I do? What the hell do I do? Now, most people would say is you get your ass back in the delivery room and you have the baby with your wife. I wasn't exactly thinking clear because I'm like, how am I going to do this? So I get on the phone. I call my dad, tell him I was traded. Then I wander back into the delivery room. And it's probably, George, honestly, now it's maybe, maybe five minutes, maybe since the time I left to the time I come back. And again, I'll paint the picture. Doctors in the room, nurses in the room, medical contraptions everywhere, and the lovely and talented Diana Olchek on her back, getting ready to give birth. She, She sees me walk in and she goes, where in the hell have you been? And I'm like, uh, my aunt's sick. And she looks at me, George. She looks at the ceiling. She looks back at me. And I swear, on my last last breath, she says to me, where are we going?
0: Oh, she knew.
1: She knew. George, and I said to myself, I said, psychic and pregnant. Oh, my god. Right? So, so I sit there and go, well, now I take a quick look over at the doctor. That's at the foot of the bed. And he's got this look on his face. Like, how are you going to get yourself out of this one? old check. Now, remember, let me, let me go back a little bit. Now, remember when I left the room, Diana was like a seven or an eight on a scale of one to 10 to have the baby. So she's pretty damn close. So I say, guess, she looks at me, looks at the ceiling. And again, I swear on my last breath, she says, Winnipeg. And I go, Oh my goodness, How in the hell did she know? So all of a sudden I look back at the foot of the bed and I, and I'm shaking my head. I could not answer. I'm I just looking at my I, I'm looking at, at looking at her and she's and I just shaking my head, George, like I, I couldn't I couldn't speak. I'm like, how did you know?' That's what I'm saying. Inside, and she's just—I'm shaking my head, she's shaking her head, and she wasn't shaking her head about anything other than is like, you know what? I can—I can—I I can feel our child saying, you know what? It's not the time right now. And I look at the foot of the bed, and I see the doctor, and the doctor's pulling off his rubber gloves, going, "All right, gonna put the catchers mitt away for a while here. This baby isn't gonna be born. This baby's not gonna be born for a while." <laughs> So, Diana absolutely shut down, uh, but proud to say uh, about two and a half hours later, uh, Thomas Vincent Olchek came into this world on November 10th, 1990, and uh, got a chance to be with Diana and uh, Tommy that night. And like a hockey player or somebody who has a commitment, I got in an airplane the next morning. George flew to Chicago, played my first game as a Winnipeg Jet against the Blackhawks. And then I flew home the next day. Oddly enough, the Winnipeg Jets were playing the Toronto Maple Leafs on Monday night back in Toronto and then eventually got there.
0: Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also has a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly one million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing – honor the legacy, pioneer the future. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Anna and Tommy home, and then I made my way to Winnipeg until they joined me about six
0: weeks later. I have a story to tell about Eddie and me. I was 30 when you began your career with the Blackhawks and it didn't take me very long to realize you were pretty good at this game, but you were also pretty good at something else. You are a damn good talker. So (laughs) one day I looked at a few of my contemporaries and I joked. I said, you know, one day this guy's going to take our jobs. Well, perhaps I was somewhat clairvoyant, but you did in fact use your voice. And good looks, I might add, and parlayed them into an extremely successful career as an analyst. So tell me a story I don't know about when you actually knew this might be part of your future.
1: Well, what a backhand from our Honda goal replay. The backhand from Patrick Kane. And watch his puck roll on edge, Pat, right at the last second. It rolls on edge. And Patrick Kane hesitates a second. We're going to get another look at that same exact replay. You know, the last three, four years of my career, George, I really started thinking about, you know, what am I going to do? You know, it's it's 1996. I had played 12 years in the NHL and it was like, you know, wow. I, You know, I, yeah, I think I could play forever, but we know that mother and father time are undefe- undefeated and I got to start preparing for life after hockey and, I just got an opportunity where I started able to do some uh, some NHL radio where I was a color analyst, and uh, you know I did a couple of sidekick uh, radio shows in the morning back in Chicago. I remember on q one oh one fm for uh, Murph in the morning. Uh, I did a a weekly uh, weekly spot with them. I had my own week uh, you know uh, you know once a week uh, radio show when i was uh, you know with the Blackhawks, so I, I just again, I just enjoyed. Communicating, and I found it to be just something that I might want to pursue when life was, you know, of ho- being a hockey player was over. And I think being prepared three or four years earlier really helped me get ready for it. And you know, I did some, uh, you know, I did some TV work for ESPN. And you know, what's interesting about that, George, is that my first TV appearance appearance for a hockey game was back in, I want to say it was back in 96, 97, where I was on my way out to Denver, Colorado to do a playoff game for ESPN, uh, Red Wings Avalanche. And unfortunately and sadly, Columbine happened. The mass shooting at the high school at Columbine. And we went out there. And they canceled the game. So my first national TV hit as a broadcaster was about the cancellation of that game uh, right after Columbine. Isn't that something how
0: you can get thrust into something like that?
1: Yeah, I I mean, it was just like I I couldn't believe it. Like I was just so myself and Dave Ryan, longtime broadcaster, uh, we had to do a hit. Uh, four sports center at the old uh, McNichols arena and talking about the cancellation. And, you know, it was unanimous on both sides and doing right by the community and and the people that we lost in that, in that massacre. And like, that was, that was my introduction to television uh, on a national stage uh, to be a part of that. And then they ended up playing the next night, but um, you know, I just think, George, that it was it was in the calling. You know, I have the, the gift of the gab, and uh, I've been very fortunate for the people that I work with and work for, and uh, I've just been very lucky. So uh, it started at the end of my playing career, and I'm glad that I was prepared because a lot of players that I know, I mean, you know, you always think you're going to play forever and the money's always going to be there, but... Uh, You got to be prepared uh, for life after sports or hockey because, uh, as I said earlier, mother and father time are undefeated.
0: You know, the funny thing about all this is when you were done with your playing career is when you began your broadcast career. But then three years later, you're you're broadcasting with Mike Lang and the Penguins. The Penguins say, uh, Eddie, we would like you to be the head coach, which is the opposite of what people do. So... Tell me a story <laughs> I don't know about your only coaching stint in this league.
1: I had the bug, and I was, I was ready to take the plunge. And my wife was behind me, and I, I was, as you mentioned, I was broadcasting the Pittsburgh Penguins for three years. And at that time, they, had not, they did not have a coach in place, a head coach in place for any of the three teams that they were involved in. So sure enough, I go in and have a meeting with Craig, I emphasize to him that um, I would love the opportunity to be considered for the head coaching job in Wilkes-Barre Scranton and the American Hockey League. You know, we have a nice two or three-hour meeting, and Craig calls me back and says, "Hey, why don't you fly? You know, why don't you come back to Pittsburgh? And uh, you know, we'll we'll have a we'll have another meeting." So we go into the meeting, and as as the meeting is going on, George, I can see this meeting is 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 trending towards the big club now. It's trending towards of who we have, what the plan is, where we are, where we're trying to get to. And next thing you know, it's like five hours later. Now, full disclosure, I have known Craig Patrick for almost, you know, what, since 84. So this, I mean, I've known Craig Patrick for 20 plus years. The whole time, George, I was thinking about the minor league job. So, but as that interview was going on, we're talking about the plan of the big club who's there, who we're going to trade, you know, what we're trying to do. And then sure enough, you know, maybe like five or, you know, five or seven days later, Craig called me on the phone and just said, Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm you know, I'm really considering you for our, for our big club. And I'm like, Oh man, you know, like, again, no experience, NHL team, a team that I had ties with obviously playing and broadcasting. And we had another meeting and then they offered, they offered me the job and, you know, look, I look back now and say, I would never, I would not trade in me saying yes. I would not trade in the experience that I got, the people that I had met proud to say that I'm Sidney Crosby's first coach in the NHL. I'm proud to say I'm Mark Andre Fleury's first coach. I would never trade it in for anything, that experience that I had. And, uh, uh, I miss it greatly i mean i miss I miss being around the guys I miss being in the trenches I miss the teaching uh, I miss seeing the guys enjoy the winning and I miss correcting the the losing but um, it's made me a better broadcaster I think it's made me better in a lot of areas in my life when it comes to having been a coach in the league and I'm very thankful to Mario and Craig for giving me the opportunity and uh, it's something that uh you know that I learned a lot from.
0: So after you're dismissed, you begin what has now been a long and rewarding broadcast career with the Blackhawks, albeit not with Pat Foley at first. People may not remember this. He was banished by Bill Wirtz, hired by the Wolves for a couple of years. You're working with Hall of Famer Dan Kelly's son. Mm-hmm. But after that, you're, not, you're united with Foley, and it's been a love fest ever since. So tell me a story or 10 about working with that guy. <laughs> yeah
1: i mean pat is uh, i think people can tell the rela- i hope i hope people can tell the relationship that we have on the air it's exactly the same off the air the blog is brought to you by bob ladoni your nationwide insurance agents during the area for 26 years to join a nation contact bob join bob.com and remember nationwide that's right, Bob. Wait a minute, who who does that blog, Bob? Oh, okay. <laughs> Nationwide is on your side. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he skeeps some... and stuff too. Do you think? Skeeping <laughs> <laughs> a... on his Blueberry? <laughs> yeah. he is, and will always be a legend in our town. So when when you get the opportunity to work with somebody that you admire. And grew up with listening to because look at all I ever did was live, eat, breathe, sleep, hockey. And I would listen to Pat and Dale call the games. And here I am in nineteen eighty four and now I'm a rookie in the NHL and you know, we're play, playing playing
0: Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog. Drag through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, And socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast, at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com.
2: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat?
1: and I get to meet Pat, and I get to know him, and you know, we just hit it off.
0: It would be easy to say someone has lived a charmed life when you grow up here with aspirations of playing for the Blackhawks, which you did, to the subsequent things that happened to you in your professional life, if only everyone lived a charmed life. So tell me a story I don't know about your battle with colon cancer, which left us all following with riveted and emotional interest. I, I really never had the persona,
1: George, of or reputation of being a tough guy. Uh, I've always been very sensitive. I've always worn uh, my heart on my sleeve. Uh, I've always been very honest and forthright my whole life. So when I went into my battle with stage three colon cancer back in uh, the summer of 2017, uh, I relied on my faith, I relied on my wife, Diana, and the understanding of uh, this horrible disease does not discriminate. And when I was told on August the 4th of 2017, at 7.07 p.m. that my tumor had been sent out for a biopsy and it came back uh, stage three colon cancer. When I heard those words from Dr. Scott Strong at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, the first thing I thought of was okay, well, how long do I have to live? And I was scared. Uh, as I said, I wasn't a tough guy ever. Um, but when I went and met with Mary Mulcahy, my oncologist at Northwestern, we had a 40. Eight minute meeting. I don't know how I remember it was 48 minutes uh, long, George, but we had a meeting, my wife, myself, and Dr. Mulcahy. And the only thing I remember in that conversation was, and I had a thousand yard stare sitting in his office thinking, I'm sick. I've been told I have cancer and I'm getting ready to start chemotherapy. I had a thousand yard stare going. I did not hear any of the conversation until Dr. Mulcahy said, Eddie, look at me. And I looked her in the eyes and she said to me, I am here to treat you. I am here to cure you, not treat you. Do you understand the difference? And I shook my head and I said, okay, so what you're telling me doc is I'm going to go through six months of chemo. I'm going to trade in six months of hell for 50 more years. Is that what you're telling me? And she says, That is my hope, Eddie. And I said, okay, where do I sign? And I started my treatments, George, on September 11th of 2017, my first treatments. I took two chemos, one at the hospital, and I took one at home for 48 hours. And if anybody, and we're all touched by this horrible disease, but if anybody knows anything about chemo, it has the ability to break you down. It brings you to your knees. Uh, I had terrible side effects from headaches, to nosebleeds, to neuropathy, to blood clots, to just going to the bathroom without having to go. Like I would just, I would just crap the floor. And I was thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to live like this now? But how in hell am I going to get through the next, next six months of this and not even know what's on the other side? So I got the treatment too. And this is probably the most uh, impactful part of my whole journey is I had my second treatment, and it, brought, it broke me down. It, it brought me to my knees, and I just told my wife, I'm done. I quit. And, George, I had never quit at anything in my life. Uh, when people told me I would never make the NHL because I was an American kid from Chicago, and those, in, in those type of players don't ever make it to the NHL. They told me I would never make it. They told me I would never play on the U.S. Olympic hockey team because I was trying out at 16 years of age. I had people tell me I could never become the first American board lead. I, I would never become the first born American lead analyst on national television in the U.S. to call hockey games. George, when I was down 200 bucks at the racetrack, but I'll check that. If I was ever down $2,000 at the racetrack, I was not quitting. I was not gonna bail. But the cancer and the chemo brought me to my knees and I told my wife I quit, I can't live like this. And I was scared. And my wife grabbed me and she looked at me, George, and all Diana said is, you gotta fight. You gotta fight for me, you gotta fight for our four kids, and you gotta fight for all the people that love you. God, everybody wants to know how's Eddie, so uh, give us everybody an update. Well, we're, uh, we're in a battle, and uh, we're going through our treatments right now, and uh, I'll have my third treatment on Monday. Uh, it's uh, I, the support that I've had, Pat, from you, from the Blackhawk organization, uh, Rocky Wirtz, John McDonough, Jay Blunk, Dr. Michael Terry, who has spearheaded everything for me with all my treatments and all the great folks over at Northwestern Hospital, the support of my family, uh, my family, my friends, and uh, all the great Hawk fans and all the hockey fans out there and the horse racing fans <laughs> uh, uh, and all the people that uh, have grabbed me and sent cards and texts and emails. And- we did a lot of crying. We had a moment that lasted 30 minutes. I cried for 35 of it. And I just, I reset, George. I, I reset and I said, you know what? I'm just going to go day to day. I'm just gonna go day to day and whatever happens in six months and we reassess, then I'll worry about that. But all I'm gonna do is live day to day. And to tie it all in, when I was going through my cancer battle, George, I was very much at peace. Even though I was scared, even though I was worried, I didn't wanna die, even though all of that, I was still very much at peace. Meaning, I've always let the most important people in my life know how I felt about them, whether it was my wife, my kids, my parents, my brothers, my closest friends. I've always had the ability, and I don't know where I learned it, I think it's a gift, is to express to somebody, hey, you know what? I just want to let you know how important and impactful you've been in my life. And if God forbid, if something ever happened, you need to tell me that you know how much you've meant to me. And I've always gotten the same response when I've done that. I'd shut up. Nothing's going to happen. You you know, what do you, you know, don't talk like that or whatever. But you know, I just always, I just always did that. I just always had the ability to express to people how lucky and blessed I've been and grateful to have them in my life. And George, that helped me get through. And I will close it this way, is that there are many people out there that are affected by this disease and it has this ability to test you and challenge you in ways that you can never imagine and just to let everybody know out there you are way tougher than you ever thought you would you are way tougher and the one thing that i proved to myself george after going through that is uh uh eddie olchek is way tougher than he ever thought he was and that helped me get through my toughest battle in my life
0: You're listening to Tell Me a Story. I don't know. I'm George Hoffman with Eddie Olczyk, and I just want to let you know, Eddie, we have approximately tree tree left to go in this interview. <laughs> I know you love horse racing. You are a very, very good handicapper. We've now seen you in national television. So tell me a story when you got hooked on this sport, and what is it? What is it about long shots that must be like scoring a hat trick with you? <laughs>
1: Yeah, um, when I was, I think I was like 12 or 13 years old, George, uh, an old friend of mine, or a friend of mine, his dad was a horse player. He introduced me to horse racing. We, uh, we had an off day of, uh, we were in between practices for hockey in the springtime or summertime. And uh, my pal, Danny Quillis, and his dad, Mr. Quill, Tony Quillis, um, he was a horse player. And we went to old Arlington Park racetrack. And we went there and I mean, I fell in love with these equine athletes, these pristine animals and these crazy humans, both men and women, getting on the backs of these horses, going 35, 40 mile an hour down the track at Arlington and hearing the late great Phil George F saying, here they come spinning out of the turn. And I, I just was enamored with the, with the, with the human and equine Connection. Like, I just thought it was just amazing. And, you know, then you started learning about, well, wow, you know, if you pick the right numbers, you might be able to turn in, you know, five bucks into 50 bucks or, you know, 10 bucks into 100 and whatever. So, look at at the start, you know, you're just playing numbers, you're playing colors, you're playing names, you're, you know, you just whatever. So, I go up to the window and again, I might have had maybe 25 or 30 bucks on me, and, you know, whatever. And, So I go up to the window and I play a couple of, you know, like I play an exact meaning I got to try to get the exact order of the top two finishers. And the first two races don't go well. And I'm like, well, this really sucks. (laughs) So I get the next race and I, you know, I put a couple of horses together. And sure enough, I invested, I think I invested $8 and uh, I hit for 118. It's a good return. Wow. Yeah, this is a great ROI here. I mean, I can go for this. This is pretty good. I mean, look at it. I was making, I think I was making like $12 a bag when I was caddying at Midlothian Country Club at the time. So, I mean, you know, look at, you get 118 bucks in about a minute and 11 seconds, like this is a hell of a gig. So again, George, my first couple of bets didn't go well. So I went back to the same teller that I had lost at, he sold me the Winnie ticket, so I went back, and he puts the ticket through the machine. And he goes, hey kid, how old are you? And I said, well, you didn't ask me how old I was when I lost. And <laughs> the guy, the number comes up 118 bucks, and the guy starts, you know, he pulls out a $100 bill, he pulls out a 10, a five, and then a couple of ones. And I figured, you know what? I'm just going to give this guy a couple of bucks for selling me the winning ticket, you know, even though I did all the work and he gave me a quick wink. And, uh, George, uh, I've been hook line and sinker, uh, ever since, uh, making my first couple of wagers. Now to tie it all in, um, sadly, uh, we lost Mr. Quill. We lost Tony Quillis, the gentleman that was a great hockey manager for me as a kid We lost Mr. Quill to his cancer battle uh, right this last January of uh, 2020. Um, But I am proud to say that right before that was the Breeders' Cup. Mr. Quill was in his battle and we knew he didn't have much time left. And uh, I had given him a few winners over the years and bet some of my picks on TV over the years. And uh, I'm proud to say the, uh, the last pick that I gave Mr. Quill, uh, was a winning, one, a winning one before he went up to the uh, horse racing skies, and uh, I feel awfully proud that uh, the gentleman that introduced me to horse racing, uh, I was able to send him off uh, uh, the right way by giving him one last winner. You know, look, tis the law. Certainly, is uh, you know, is the horse to beat three to five. I think might be a gift, Jeff. Uh, when you look at the departure of Art Collector, uh, who was going to be my pick, full disclosure, but uh three to five might be a gift uh i think he's probably going to go off like more like two to five but I, I find this really interesting the way this race is ended up being drawn you see the horses through the first the first nine on the inside and then you get to the outside
0: i would be remiss eddie if i didn't ask you to tell me the story about how you managed to turn this a pick six into a whole lot of money <laughs> i am we're talking about a whole lot of money
1: Yeah. Um, well, I was, uh, traveling home from the, uh, I was traveling home. I believe it was back in 2010, back in 2010, I was traveling home from the uh, Las Vegas awards for the NHL and I was flying home and I got home in time and it was a Friday night in June and I was betting the late races at Hollywood park, uh, which is no longer there. So They had a pick six carryover, meaning it's like a lottery. Like if, if nobody gets the winning numbers, it carries over. So that's what it was. So that night I get home, I make a $168 investment. So meaning it was a $2 bet. So there were 84 combinations I had with the numbers that I picked for six consecutive races. So I'm watching the races. I'm two for two. My lone pick in the third race has to win. It's the only way that that I have a chance at winning this pick six. And they'll let people know that the pool had a million five in the pool. So there was a $1,500,000 in the pool. I picked a long shot. The horse was 17 to one. I just liked the way the horse was training. He was coming back quickly. I thought if the jockey rode it the right way, we would have a chance to, you know, to win the race. So sure enough, they're turning for home, and here comes this horse. I think the name of the horse was Streets of Heaven. This horse comes – it looks like he got shot out of a cannon. He wins the race at 17 to 1. So now I'm three for three. So I guess the, the, the analogy would be is, oh, wow, we see the lottery balls drop. We got the first one. We got the second one. Now we got a real obscure number, and boom, it hits. So now you're thinking, wow, I got a shot here. I got a big shot. So sure enough, race four hits, race five hits. Now we're in the last race. There's ten horses running. I have eight of the ten horses.
0: You had eight of the ten horses picked.
1: Yes, in that last race.
0: You can't lose just about.
1: No, no, I can't lose, but the difference between making twenty five grand and a million five is all over the board, and I have a eight and ten chance of turning a hundred and sixty-eight dollar investment into 25 grand or a million five so being the uh, the competitive horse player that I am and this is very late at night again this is la time it's like 10:15 in LA it's 12:15 in Chicago so I call one of my buddies that's living in New Jersey to share the news hey I'm alive you know watch the race you know good luck all that kind of stuff and I also call a gentleman that most hockey fans would know the name once I say it who is a Horse player extraordinaire as well. I pick up the phone and call Joel Quinville. Now, lo and behold, Joel Quinville is on the East Coast. It is one fifteen in the morning. I want to share this news with another horse player. I pick up. I pick up the phone. I call Joel Quinville. On the first ring, Joel Quinville is on the other line. All he says to me, "Are you alive? Are you alive?" And I tell him what, I tell him what I got. He's excited. He goes, I really like the 10. And that's the I had, I had the 10. He said, I think the 10's going to win. And I think the name of the horse was Suance's de Espana. That's the name of what the horse was Suance's de Espana was the name of the horse. He was the 10 horse. So we're watching as a family. The horse goes by, I got four or five of the horses that are coming down the lane, I'm gonna win. Like, I'm gonna win between 25 and $500,000. And sure enough, the 10 horse wins, the one that Joel Quinville said would. Here come the payouts, you gotta wait, you gotta wait. And sure enough, the $168 investment turns into $500,000.
0: What's your reaction?
1: further react well first the action was is I got even George <laughs> and, then, even and then and then and then and then I think and then I think according to my kids because I kind of blacked out I think according to my kids uh the lovely and talented Diana Olchek yells out we're gonna get a pool <laughs>
0: uh
1: which did not happen which did not happen just for the record um The ROI for that night uh, for me, George, was uh, pretty salty and uh, something that I'm very proud of, and uh, I got lucky. Every squirrel finds a nut every once in a while.
0: I like to end all of these interviews with the same question, Eddie. Tell me a story of what you would have been had it not been for hockey.
1: I would have been a baseball player, George. Um, My dad, uh, the real Ed Olchek, believes – uh, that I would have been a be- better baseball player than a hockey player. Um, I loved baseball as a kid. I don't want to say sadly, but I chose this with the support of my family. Sadly, I gave up baseball at 14 years of age to become a hockey player. Uh, I really would have been, really would have been interesting to see if I would have chosen to play two sports a little bit longer and see where it might have taken me you know I mean look at I, I hear the stories of and know the stories of Danny age and Bo Jackson and and in uh, and, and primetime and you know guys like that um, I always wonder what might have happened um, but I I really believe I, I really do um, that Eddie Olchek uh, would have been a baseball player if not a hockey player
0: Thanks so much for your knowledge, expertise, through all these years. And thank you, Eddie Olchek, for telling me a story I don't know. My thanks to NBC Sports Chicago, WGN TV, and Jeff Siegel and ExpressBet.com for those memorable highlights. And as always, my thanks to T.J. Reeves for developing this Encore Week, Will Hansel for some nifty editing, and Nick Tochi for our graphics, and to our wonderful sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing. Find them at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com, and by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago Hot Dog. They're at viennabeef.com. Tune in tomorrow when we conclude Encore Week with our very first guest, ESPN's Mike Will.